0: And thinking about the most nuanced and accurate uh, sort of middle ground and balanced perspective is something that the information context of our society and the political context of our society are making more and more difficult.
1: Hello. I'm Jeff Kambaservis from the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the mighty, muddled, moderate majority of Americans, drawing upon history, biography, and current events. I'm delighted to be joined today by Michael Mazar, a senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. He's a Washington-based writer and policy specialist who has worked in government, academia, and the think tank world, specializing in U.S. defense and national security issues. And more particularly for our purposes today, he is the author of a stunning new study entitled The Societal Foundations of National Competitiveness, which was commissioned by the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. And behind its somewhat anodyne title, uh, the study is a probing and ultimately somewhat chilling assessment of the danger of American national decline. Uh, But despite the disturbing subject matter of your study, Mike, I'm really pleased to be talking to you today.
0: Well, likewise, and I think there's a lot of hope buried in the report too, so.
1: (laughs) This is true. Um, Before we get into the study, can you tell me something about where you come from, where you studied, what led you to the position that you now hold?
0: Uh, Sure. I mean, I've been uh, in the national security field for 30 years, um, was interested in it in school and graduate school, um, started working at think tanks um, when I was in college, actually, to start to pay for school. And... um, uh, went to the Georgetown National Security Studies program for a master's and the University of Maryland for a, for a doctorate and have worked at a few think tanks, worked on the Hill, worked in the Pentagon, did time in the Navy Reserve, worked at the National War College and professional military education. So a variety of uh, different kinds of places all around the theme of uh, sort of being a generalist in national security studies.
1: You got your BA as well as your MA from Georgetown, correct?
0: Yep, that's right. Mm -hmm.
1: And I believe after you got your PhD from Maryland, you were for a while a legislative assistant to Representative Dave McCurdy.
0: That's right. Uh, This was a long time ago, uh, showing my age. But uh, yeah, um, I worked for Dave when he was, he had been chairman of the Intelligence Committee. And when I worked for him, he was heading a subcommittee of armed services. And then also chairman of the Democratic Leadership Council. uh, And I did some political speech writing for him as well as defense work, and then actually went back to work for him at a trade association, the Electronic Industries Alliance, um, looking at trends in the high-tech world.
1: The Democratic Leadership Council was, of course, the moderate entity that became the base of power for Bill Clinton uh, and fueled his rise to the presidency.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, At the time, it was... um, you know, which which looks uh, sort of quaint in retrospect now, given the, the fate of neoliberalism, so to speak. But um, mm. was an effort to kind of pull the Democratic Party back from what was perceived as being too far to the left to win national elections and so on. Um, but I think, you know, there's there's a lot of themes, for example, in, in the current study, in our current work that hark back to aspects of priorities of the DLC You know, two leading ones are kind of de-bureaucratization and addressing the problem of kind of bureaucratic overreach, which constrains innovation. Uh, And then another one is national service, which was a big focus of Dave's, uh, was a DLC related idea. And just the notion of how you get young people in various ways, you know, obviously military and, and otherwise to have opportunities to serve their country and build national identity that way is something he was very interested in. So there were a lot of issues that remain very timely, I think.
1: Yeah, um, he was actually an Oklahoma Democrat, wasn't he?
0: Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Sort of in the David Boren model. Exactly
0: right. right, yes. Yeah, moderate, Moderate. Uh, you know, in, in the good old days of sort of more of a bipartisan sensibility and a larger number of Democrats and Republicans who kind of occupied the center
1: Uh, You were about a decade uh, a teacher at the National War College. What is the National War College?
0: So National War College is a senior uh, professional military education institution. So folks in the military, if they stay through, you know, colonel, for example, they'll go through their, I mean, they could come in through ROTC, but if they go through the military academies, they have their initial, this is officers, obviously, their initial undergraduate training. Then they have intermediate level school, uh, which is very sort of typically very operationally focused and designed to make them better. You know kind of uh majors uh and lieutenant colonels eventually and then their senior level pme which is lieutenant colonels colonels or uh in the navy um captains or commanders and uh it's generally designed to help rising senior officers Become better strategists and better sort of all around leaders for more senior rank. So, the National War College is one of a number. Each of the services has their own. There's Army War College, Navy War College, National is a a joint one, although they all have representatives from all the services there. We would also have uh, international students uh, from armies all over the world. We had State Department, Intelligence Community, USAID. So, it's an opportunity for somebody who's, say, a colonel who's going to go on to brigade command and then maybe more senior leadership, uh, promotion of the general officer ranks to come and interact with um, folks from around the government, from other militaries, to study strategy for a 10-month master's program. Uh, it's an accredited master's program. And hopefully to make an investment in, you know, in the quality of their future leadership.
1: Thank you for that explanation. Uh, you're now with the RAND Corporation. I think for a lot of listeners, that will require some explanation as well.
0: So RAND is, a, you know, RAND is a, a sort of a child of the Cold War in a sense, a, a, a research organization that supports government analysis of defense issues, basically, and started out with, uh, I think, primarily a narrower focus on air force, nuclear deterrence kinds of issues, and has since then. Uh, broadened. RAND as a whole has non-national security components as well, only I think actually less than half of our staff deals with national security. We have a big health, a big education, and other uh, components. But on the national security side, RAND has sort of the official uh, external, what they call federally funded research and development Corporation and FFRDC that for the Army and the Air Force and one that serves the Defense Department. So the the interesting thing about RAND is that we are sort of halfway in government and halfway out. We are explicitly designed to be an outside voice to a service, for example, they can ask a question of and get uh, an independent analytically grounded answer. Um, Some of the questions are very technical about specific weapon systems. Some are much more strategic. Um, about the you know future of the Army in the Indo-Pacific or something like that. We do our work in those cases for sponsors inside the government. We have access to classified information and current government plans. And more than sort of traditional academia or other think tanks, I think in a lot of cases we're perceived as being kind of inside the tent, as being part of the team and helping offices with whatever questions they need answered. But yet... We really prize our independence and our ability to say things that are sometimes uncomfortable or sometimes not exactly what a potential sponsor was expecting to hear or maybe even wants to hear. Um, And the vast majority of folks we work with in government really understand and value that independence uh, because they know they're going to get sort of an objective answer from RAND.
1: Uh, perhaps the most famous alumnus of Rand was Herman Kahn, uh, the strategist of nuclear war uh, and nuclear competition, who was parodied as Dr. Strangelove in the film of that name.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think our softball team is the Strangeloveians or something like that. We have a lot of fun <laughs> with that at Rand. I mean, another famous uh, a, a alumnus of Rand is Dan Ellsberg, you know, who of course was, it's forgotten that he did some really interesting work on decision theory and was a, Very promising budding academic who, you know, I'm not sure he would have gone on to be Tom Schelling, but had the rest of his future not happened, he could have become a very uh, well known academic and theorist of decision making and related sort of topics. But obviously, he uh, had a different experience.
1: And this report that you've completed uh, was commissioned by the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Can you explain what that is?
0: Yes. And so Office of Net Assessment, or ONA, is often described as the Pentagon's internal think tank. Um, It is an office that both conducts and commissions research to answer long-term questions of national competitiveness for the Defense Department. Um, As the name implies, uh, it became famous for a particular analytical approach of conducting net assessments. That is to say, in a given area, like integrated air defense or whatever it might be, RAND in its history has commissioned uh, a set net assessments of the United States versus potential uh, competitors, where we stand, how we're doing relative to them. Most of its work is classified and uh, very little of it, even the stuff that they commission from the outside is, is necessarily released. Um, Some of the work they've commissioned from RAND, including this study and a couple of others I've done on the future of the international order and work on disinformation uh, and some other RAND work commissioned by them uh, has been published because that's RAND's approach of doing things. But essentially, they're helping the Defense Department to think long term, deeply, and often in innovative ways about um, how to think about making the nation secure.
1: The Office of Net Assessment is a Nixon era creation. created in 1973. And I believe it had only one director for about 40 years, which was Andrew Marshall, uh, known sometimes, not to his face, as Yoda. Was he anyone you ever crossed paths with?
0: No, uh, my involvement with them came after his departure um, and working with the current director, uh, Jim Baker, um, uh, who who I've worked with on the studies I've done with them.
1: So the current director is James H. Baker, not to be confused with James A. Baker, the former Secretary of State. He was, if memory serves, a, a former advisor to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, including Admiral Mike Mullen and General Martin Dempsey. Uh, what is he like?
0: Right, exactly. So Jim is a retired Air Force uh, officer um, and served in those positions as the senior st- strategic advisor to, to uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and uh, had other strategy jobs in the Pentagon, and um, Jim is one of those great examples, and this is one of the reasons why working at a place like the War College is so much fun, because every year there are a number of the students who come through that you discover are among the most, you know, they've had a very operational career, their day job requires that they, they focus on uh, maybe narrow, particular, sometimes technical, military topics but they're among the most intellectually curious and thoughtful people that you will ever encounter. And um, Jim, I think, had sort of an unrealized passion for strategic issues before he came to the War College and and is just uh, an incredibly incisive thinker and a a really outstanding supervisor of research in my view. So he's, uh, I, I think, a great person to have in that position.
1: Yeah, he has four master's degrees, including one from the National War College.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and that's not as unusual as one might think. I mean, there is just, as I say, working at the war colleges was a a constant uh, education in the number of military officers who pursue that kind of constant intellectual uh, engagement, graduate education, uh, just constantly learning. And it's just a real pleasure to work with folks like that in a graduate setting.
1: So what do you think Jim Baker and the Office of Net Assessment were looking for when they commissioned this study of national competitiveness from RAND?
0: The the idea that the fundamental U.S. national security challenge is large-scale rivalries or competitions with peer or near-peer rivals has been building for a number of years. Obviously, it it became sort of the centerpiece of the 2018 national defense strategy, and since that time has been sort of the default approach that we've moved out of a post Cold War era of being focused primarily on regional challengers like Iraq and Iran and North Korea, although they're still there. We've m- moved then out of the counterterrorism era of post 9 11 U.S. national security focus to now a focus on Russia and China primarily. But in that focus, we tend to equate the idea of the, the response to that, of the national security policies required, uh, at least in the national security realm, as primarily being about how much we spend on certain weapon systems, how many of them we buy, maybe the technologies that we assure, such as the new uh, CHIPS or USICA Act to sustain technological competition with China. But I think Jim's sense was that there is a more fundamental level of national competitiveness, the basic qualities of a society that make it dynamic or competitive that are the origin point of the other competitive advantages. Economic growth, economic dynamism and productivity, technological advancement, those are all important indicators of how well you're doing, but they originate in more fundamental societal characteristics. And so, you know, what he had in mind, I think, was beginning to lay the groundwork for how we would approach a societal net assessment, how the United States stacks up, in particular with China, because even before Ukraine, you know, Russia just didn't have the qualities to be as competitive long term, how we stack up with China, uh, and how other countries around the world might theoretically stack up in these really essential engines of competitive advantage.
1: So uh, the quote, actually, at the beginning of the report, uh, is that history suggests that the outcome of the confrontation with China is more likely to be determined by the basic characteristics of U.S. society, which you called qualities that reflect the kind of country that a nation is, rather than the things it builds or does. And apparently, that perspective came direct from Jim Baker. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, we he had the um, uh, we sort of came to the idea of the study. He had the notion of it we worked it together um, I don't want to you know the 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 report doesn't have his name on it so he shouldn't be associated with any particular quotes in there Fair um, but you know that that reflects the spirit of what we were trying to pursue which was this idea that you know and it's not to say defense policies are relevant, it's not to say that our the level of our military preparedness in Asia doesn't make a difference of course it makes a difference it's only to say that when we think about competing, we ought to think first and primarily about how we compete as a society.
1: Right. So I should add that this uh, study is not classified. It is available from RAND itself. You can also get it on Amazon, and I believe it's also available as a free download. So I found it just fascinating uh, to look at this study because you are really sort of surveying uh, the sweep of human history and the principal great powers and civilizations to try to find out what made them effective um, and ultimately what led to their decline. So this is something that very much stands in the line of a lot of comparative historians whom I've been familiar with, including David Landis, Paul Kennedy, uh, Deirdre McCloskey. How did you go about conducting the study?
0: Yeah, that's a great description. And, and some of the folks you mentioned really are sort of, I think, the models that we uh, tried to, to emulate as we did this work. So uh, we did a number of, I would say, sort of three main components of the research agenda. One was to review some of the folks you're talking about, sort of comparative histories of various kinds, authors that already were trying to look across at least some sweep of history and compare variables and factors and come up with ideas of what produced national rise and decline, national success and failure. So you've mentioned a number of them. You know, Samuel Mokier is another one. There's looks like Ian Morris, who eventually come down to emphasizing more specific uh, factors like energy production, Asa Mogul and Robinson, of course, are famous for their emphasis on institutions and inclusive versus extractive institutions. So there are some of those comparative pieces that end up making an argument about one variable or one factor, a dominant one, and there's others that sort of just survey the landscape. So we, we uncovered and read all of that that we could. We then did 12 in-depth historical case studies ranging from ancient Rome to the present United States. Uh, We did that by doing internal research and by commissioning outside historians, experts in in a number of those different dozen historical empires and countries to help us think through the sources of advantage and disadvantage that govern their uh, trajectories. And then the third thing we did was looked at more recent uh, empirical evidence once we began to uncover some factors. So for example, one of our characteristics is shared opportunity. So does a society Get the talent out of the greatest number of its people possible, and give them the opportunity to express that talent, to innovate, to be entrepreneurs, all the rest. Um, we looked for specific research that would support or deny those kind of factors. So, you know, does inequality affect economic growth or productivity? Does social mobility affect the level of innovation in a society? More specific questions that researchers over the last several decades have done sometimes more quantitative, more measurable uh, research to sort of uh, determine. And we sort of use each of those to assess each of the characteristics. And as we went, we sort of accumulated a longer list of potential characteristics, wintered it down over time, combined some, broke some up, and, uh, you know, the list is, is somewhat subjective and ultimately this is a qualitative work. There's no index here. There's no number of exactly where, you know, uh, the Renaissance Italian city state stood on, um, you know, a shared identity or shared opportunity, but it's, it is grounded, uh, in, in a very detailed way, as you saw in, in those three baskets of research.
1: What uh, size team are we talking about who contributed to this?
0: Um, so, you know, the, the actual written document is ultimately my product. We had about a half a dozen ran folks internally that contributed background research to helping develop it. They're acknowledged in the study. And we had about, I think, eight outside historians that contributed to it. So it's not an enormous team, but, you know, certainly more than just one.
1: And part of the appeal of the book is that it's very well written. Congratulations. Um but it's also a synthetic work. It's not sort of you know one chapter on Rome, another on China, another on Austro-Hungary. It's all of them together, drawing upon different points in their histories. And right. it does seem that sort of the two most relevant, perhaps, uh, are Britain, uh, where the industrial Re- revolution developed, and then also the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. which in some sense was our, our counterpart during the Cold War and declined for reasons that you get into. But the principal finding, as you just mentioned, uh, or at least what the first finding, was that there is in fact an identifiable set of societal characteristics that do seem to be related to competitive success, and, and I'll, just, I'll just list them. Uh, there's seven of them. The first is uh, national ambition and will, uh, by which you mean to achieve both internally and externally, to push the frontiers of scientific knowledge and technical achievement while mastering the natural world. Uh, The second is a a unified, coherent national identity, one that encourages effort, loyalty, sacrifice, and commitment to the common good. Uh, The third is a shared opportunity, which is significantly and widely accessible throughout the society. Uh, The fourth is an active and effective state. Uh, The fifth are effective institutions, uh, including economic, social, political, and military institutions. The sixth is a learning and adapting society, one that's intellectually curious, open to change. And the seventh is competitive diversity, as measured in many different ways, and pluralism in which various actors or levels of governance can take distinct initiative. You know, again, it's a big question to ask how you came up with those as opposed to others, but maybe just tell me something about the process of finding and identifying those seven critical characteristics.
0: Yeah. So I think that the first um, step in the process, really, the first literature that we consulted was... um, the, the comparativists that we talked about. And and related literatures, including, as you know, there's a big literature on what's called the Great Divergence, why did Europe leap ahead of the rest of the world in terms of economic growth rates and technology development after about 1500. There's a lot of economists that have done work on that that are not sort of global comparativists, but are trying to explain that particular thing. So we went through that literature and essentially made a roster of the factors that people were identifying. Uh, in some cases, like I said, they're very specific, like institutions or energy capture. In other cases, uh, they're more abstract, um, like uh, McCloskey or or Landis, talking about sort of uh, ideas and uh, the, the essential cultural values of a society. But that's where we started and, and kind of tried to identify the things that had been nominated so far. And we took that list into the historical case studies and then ask the question you know do we see these in these cases uh, are they present um if if they're not why not if they are can we you know we tried for the longest time to ask if we could quantify uh, some of these things and it just you know the data is not very good in a lot of cases you know as you know some of the the most famous uh, even relatively recent uh, efforts to to quantify, for example, economic growth like Angus Madison has been significantly uh, altered by newer scholarship. We just didn't feel like trying to stretch this over a long period of time in a real quantified way, right? But we took the the nominated characteristics into the case studies uh, and winnowed them down. And then having done that, had roughly the final list and then looked for more recent empirical research that might support some of those. And in some cases, there is a lot. Uh, In some cases, uh, really, we sort of were searching around the edges for proxy things that could give us a hint as to, you know, how exactly unified national identity contributes to economic growth. There's there's ways to think about that and there's research that's been done. But anyway, that was sort of the journey. And so, you know, to be clear, as we stress at the beginning and the end of the study, we're not claiming that these are the only seven characteristics. This is not designed to be the final word. And and in fact, you know, if somebody were to write something saying, you know, number five doesn't really work, here's all the historical evidence, you should, you know, remove that from your list, that's fine. I mean, we were trying to start a debate and get people thinking about just essentially, you know, resuscitating this idea of national competitive advantage from a societal perspective and get people thinking and talking about it. But that was the basic analytical journey that we used to get to the final seven.
1: You add a number of other big sort of global points at the outset of this study. Uh, the second one I thought was very interesting for me as a historian of moderation. Uh, you emphasize the importance of a prudent balance in seeking sources of national advantage, because all seven of those societal characteristics that you enumerated uh, carry danger when they're thrown out of balance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know... Um, and it makes it challenging to sort of recommend or, or you know, uh, simply say uh, here are the seven characteristics. Turn them up to eleven on the dial, and you'll be fine. Because, you know, on the first one, national ambition and will. Obviously, national overreach is one of the most common sources of the decline of empires and nations. So, moderation and balance um, in all of them. I mean, in some of them, you know, national opportunity. I suppose there's ways to go too far in sharing that um, if, if you mandate certain levels of shared opportunity in ways that would constrain innovation or something. You know, some of them are not as much of a danger in terms of a loss of balance. But uh, a, a number of them, you know, national ambition, and well, unif- well, unified national identity obviously can become a constraining orthodoxy. Uh, active state, um, an active state is great until it becomes a controlling, overbearing state that weighs down on a country's dynamism. Uh, so uh, there's four or five of them that getting out of balance is really a direct ticket to national decline.
1: I'm not really a a theoretician of moderation. Uh, That's more my friend Aurelian Crayutu, who's a political scientist at uh, Indiana University. But I thought it was significant that he subtitled his most recent book, Faces of Moderation, as The Art of Balance in an Age of Extremes. Uh, Because moderation really is about trying to find a balance between what are often two good quantities. So just, for example, the one you mentioned, Shared Opportunity you know, yes, we need to widen opportunity to the practical maximal extent possible. But on the other hand, as you point out, uh, there's a tendency when widening opportunity to downgrade uh, ambition and merit and other qualities that actually are ultimately very important for a dynamic society.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think, you know, this gets to, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a, a political, a narrower political way to think about moderation. But this broader social way, I think, is just critical in the sense that, you know, it, it is a finding of the study that empirically countries, societies that can find a way to appreciate both sides of a coin that can, you know, in that old phrase, hold two opposing ideas in their mind at the same time, that think in terms of both and instead of binary oppositions, and, you know, I, I suspect that that's really part of the – when we've had periods of more of a bipartisan sensibility in our politics, that's been some of the at least implicit mindset of a lot of the leaders, that yes, A is true, but B is also in you know significantly true. I mean, it, just on a, a relatively different issue, um, you know, you see a lot in the debate about Ukraine today, where one side says – you know, uh, Russia is evil, Russia is the aggressor, Russia must be destroyed and defeated, and the other side says uh, NATO enlargement was the problem, we provoked them, we're to blame. Um, there's elements of truth in both of those statements, and thinking about the the, the most nuanced and accurate uh, sort of middle ground and balanced perspective is something that The information context of our society and the political context of our society are making more and more difficult.
1: Exactly. You mentioned a a third sort of overall point, which is that there are a set of distinct factors other than those societal characteristics that also matter. And, you know, there's any number one could add the quality of leadership. But you particularly mentioned uh, the, I guess, posture of a nation's elite, whether it's actually trying to contribute to the common good or whether it's rent-seeking and hoarding power and influence for itself. Uh, And then also, um, you know, factors like the climate and environmental sustainability, um, fiscal sustainability uh, in terms of a nation's debt and its position, its relation to energy sources. One could go... On and on on that level. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I was going to say exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's you know, one chapter we sort of summarize those. You know, you've given a number of good examples. I, I would also stress that there's a couple dealing with finances and investment that we originally had as possible characteristics, but eventually decided they're not really societal characteristics. They're the output of other kinds of more fundamental characteristics, they're national behaviors. But the, de- the, the relative decline of the application of capital for productive investment, as opposed to, you know, moving stock prices or uh, kind of profit taking um, is something that has emerged in a number of historical cases before the current United States. Uh, And then fiscal or financial sustainability is another huge theme, you know, going back to Paul Kennedy and others. So uh, yeah, there's a variety of those sorts of other things. And one of the things we do at the end of the study is sort of just briefly offer a little bit of a framework for saying, okay, apart from the main seven societal characteristics, here's some things to look at to see if you're competing well in these other areas as well.
1: Yes, exactly. You know, uh, the shadow of uh, one book that I read recently seems to hang over this study a bit, and that's uh, Roth Stouthitz, uh, The Decadent Society, where he points out that he makes essentially the fourth point of your study, which is that positive feedback synergies are extremely important and that dynamic nations that do achieve commercial success almost always have these societal characteristics going for them at the same time. And conversely, nations that decline have problems go wrong with each of these things at the same time. Uh, you also make the point that these dynamic nations are almost always plugged into energetic and productive networks of exchange, whether that be commercial, intellectual, otherwise. And they almost always serve as as global hubs of trade, finance, culture, and intellectual dialogue.
0: Right, exactly. Um... And, and that's uh, partly a product of some of the societal characteristics. Um, I mean, like one of them is a learning and adapting society. And that is a very consistent theme of civilization, societies on the rise and at their peak. They're very intellectually uh, curious. Uh, they want to engage the outside world. They want to get ideas. You know, Meiji Japan is a great example of this sending a significant part of their senior officials abroad for a year and a half to study and bring back lessons, but just in general, being uh, anxious and open to learning from the outside world. And in the process, obviously, uh, not exactly reversing, but modifying earlier uh, Japanese practices of greater isolation, although those can be exaggerated, um, to try to place themselves more at, at trade hubs and other kinds of things. but. Yeah, the most competitive and dynamic societies are uh, extraordinary they they want to engage the outside world and they eventually become sort of a gravitational force for systemic patterns, um, trade, learning, science, culture. Uh, so that's a very consistent pattern among these kind of countries.
1: And your fifth point was one that you thought might have been the most important, which is that uh, there's something you call the Renaissance spirit. That's the one default mosaic of success, the one recipe that's really representative of all the most dynamic and most sustainably competitive societies. Um, And its characteristics include a national ethos that is open, tolerant, full of intellectual energy and commitment to learning. Uh, It has strong and effective public and private institutions. It's characterized by a pluralistic clash of ideas, Uh, It draws upon the abilities of people from many backgrounds to offer their talents and succeed. It's motivated by a competitive spirit, and there's a societal reverence for experimentation and new ideas. And it is, as you mentioned before, the hub of international networks of various kinds.
0: Yeah, that's a great summary. And, um, you know, I, I think the one word that comes to mind to describe this is sort of confidence. You know, these are confident societies. They they feel able to be open to outside ideas. They don't feel the need to uh, wall themselves off from the world, so to speak. They uh, look to the future with confidence. They think that um, you know they have the ability to shape the international future, and they believe the future of their own society is going to be better. And all of that leads to you know helps to underwrite this essential grassroots dynamic forward-looking positive energy that characterizes these kinds of societies and obviously and i'm sure we'll talk about this but it's one of the reasons to be concerned about the united states today because in a variety of variety of ways we see um you know significant constraints on that sort of confidence and that sort of mentality that tends to to underpin what we call the the uh, renaissance spirit
1: yeah i uh found out about your study via David Ignatius's column in the Washington Post over the July 4th weekend. And David was also deeply impressed by this study, but he found it disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Because he writes, Mazar's disturbing conclusion is that America is losing many of the seven attributes he believes are necessary for competitive success. And he begins with American ambition and confidence, which once was one of the things that really defined us. Um, He quotes, writers and scholars alike have argued that the spirit of adventurousness, experimentation, and determination to remake the future have all ebbed in the American character. Can you just expand on that a little bit?
0: So yeah, I mean, he, uh, so the study has 11 chapters, one of which uh, 90% of our work was to identify the seven characteristics and related general findings. And then 10% was to apply that to the United States and say, <laughs> okay, how are we doing according to those factors? And it was very kind of David to, to write the piece. And he, you know, obviously I think one of the more kind of newsworthy or striking points of the study will be chapter 10, which applies it to the United States and says in a variety of these areas, there's real reason for uh, real reason for concern. Um, and I think uh if, the story of what's going on in the United States today and why we seem so kind of soul sick as a nation is obviously tremendously complex. And our study does not try to explain that, but merely uh, does sort of a, a, a snapshot diagnosis of what the data look like uh, in the seven areas, the seven characteristics in terms of the trends in the United States today. Uh, so, for example, we're talking about confidence and, and ambition. The first one, national ambition and will. You know, in all of these areas, one of the things we stress is that there is a tremendous amount of kind of residual ongoing energy in the United States. And it would it, it, it's, you know, a lot of the data support the idea that it would be wrong to say that the United States um, no longer has these characteristics, no longer has any ambition. There are lots of, you know, thousands of, Uh, entrepreneurs, um, CEOs, uh, scientists, others that still reflect exactly the level of sort of ambition to remake the world that we're talking about in that characteristic. But uh, if you look at polling of what uh, the majority of Americans think about their country, how it's doing, where it's headed, what its role should be in the world, uh, the degree to which the United States is an exceptional nation, uh, there's just a lot of objective evidence that the, the degree of optimistic, confident ambition for the future has absolutely ebbed in the United States, again, for a lot of reasons that are beyond what we go into in the study. But yeah, in, in that and in other areas, there's there's plenty of data to to support the idea that um, the, the, that we are on the far side, at least for the moment of our peak of a lot of these characteristics.
1: That's a disturbing conclusion, but I find it kind of hard to argue with that. Uh, you did actually f- start that segment by pointing out that the United States in the second half of the 20th century might have represented the most complete package of competitive advantages, the most ideal representation of the Renaissance spirit you spoke about uh, of any great power in history.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, and and partly because we had, as we were talking about earlier, you know, balance in a lot of these areas. You know, one of the characteristics, the active state, is a great example. The the binary opposition is state versus market. But actually, as many scholars, you know, Mariana Musicato and and, and others have have demonstrated, the active intervention in limited, targeted uh, ways of the American state in trade policy, but in particular in research and development support, uh, in the offshoots of a lot of the DARPA programs that are very famous, you know, the ARPANET that leads to the internet and so much more support for education, um, scholarships, fellowships, general research support, the American government at various levels, not only the federal level, have been catalysts of competitive advantage. Even while sustaining a system that is, as we find are are the most sustainable forms of advantage, is essentially grassroots and market-based, right? So one of the reasons why the United States has had very good ratings in all of these characteristics, good at at its peak, strong sense of unified national identity, a very clear sense of national ambition and will, more shared opportunity uh, than most large powers in recent history, and an increasing degree of shared opportunity over time, and has reflected a decent balance in a lot of these areas. And so you know, we certainly don't suggest that it's sort of an ideal case or an ideal type. But when you compare to the real world of other major powers, you know, as you mentioned, in the modern era, Britain probably comes closest. But the United States clearly has uh, a more competitive model than than even Britain at the the height of the Industrial Revolution.
1: To return to uh, Ignatius's uh, article, He points out that the United States does seem to be falling away from past performance on each of these seven societal characteristics. So national unity and cohesion are declining. Uh, The country no longer seems to be as effective at assimilating diverse groups as it once was. America is still an opportunity society in principle, um, but you point out uh, evidence of rising inequality and growing constraints. There's obviously the Raj Chetty point that you receipt here, which is that uh, in each generation since 1945, children have been less likely to make more money than their parents. Um, The government hasn't been able or willing to address or correct the problems. Uh, There's a real problem of declining government effectiveness in the United States over the past 20 years. Private sector productivity has also been stagnant, and both uh, private and public sector institutions are really dealing with bureaucratic bloat, um, what you in another article in American Affairs have referred to as predatory abstract systems. Uh, So this is actually kind of uh, uh, a lot of of problems. And and as uh, Ignatius points out, uh, your conclusions uh, are that when countries begin to fail, it is a negative feedback loop, a poisonous synergy. And some people could (laughs) maybe just give up on the whole project and want to burn it down and start over.
0: Well, that's where some people are now, unfortunately. I certainly am not. I mean, I I think so so everything you've said is correct. And there is definitely this risk of a negative feedback loop. And I think we're seeing that is, you know, some of the reactions today are to a decline in what we would call the active state and effective institutions, where people no longer believe that um, the leading institutions of their society, public and private, uh, have their interests at heart or are accountable in any way to uh, the popular view. As you've indicated, this is not just uh, the stagnation issue. It's not just a public sector problem. Um, the rise of what's been called managerial capitalism uh, has created in the private sector a variety of behavior patterns that are you know, uh, having some of the same effects there. I My remaining optimism comes from the fact from from two things. Number one, even with those problems, as we see in you know U.S. economic growth rates over the last couple of years, the resilient dynamism of you know the stock market, continuing examples of U.S. innovation, uh, the continuing relative strength in the global sense of of the U.S. higher education sector. The United States has a lot of accumulated advantages and a lot of accumulated strength. I mean, one of the you know, there's um, folks, uh, Michael Beckley has made some comparisons between the United States and China. And one of the things he emphasizes uh, that most others don't is in a way that stocks are as important as flows and that the United States has a multiple of the accumulated wealth of China, even though on an annual basis, their growth rate might be higher, their economy is growing to, to match ours. We have this incredible accumulated foundation of competitive potential. The other reason that I'm still optimistic is that our problem, like particularly when we think about competing with China, their problems are a lot more systemic than ours are. The nature of their system means that, you know, their real estate uh, challenges, their real estate bubble, their debt problem, uh, their demographic issues and how to deal with them are nested in a uh, centralized, more inherently corrupt, less inherently dynamic uh, sort of system, Uh, whereas in the United States, the problems we're talking about, the vast majority of them, are definitely subject to uh, mitigation by the right kind of public policies. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there in most of these areas, these societal characteristics that could be grabbed. There's just glimmers of hope in some of the recent technology bills that people are, you know, identifying those, the the issue now is whether the negative feedback loop has taken hold to a degree, and you're going to have the intersection of public loss of faith leading to extreme politics, leading to collapse of the center and higher levels of partisanship, leading to a further decline of institutions and so on, that you know, are we already sliding too fast down the hill to get a hold of that? I don't think so. I don't think that's the case yet. But, you know, it's obviously very worrisome. But those are the two reasons why I I retain optimism that we could, in theory, uh, create the next era of American dynamism built on these same characteristics if you just have the right critical mass of public policy. Um, The question is whether we can get there, whether we have the will as a nation to demand the kind of leadership that gets us there.
1: That is a big if. Um, You point out in the conclusion of the study that its aim was diagnostic, not prescriptive. But at the same time, you do point to some of the elements that uh, an agenda to rejuvenate uh, America's engine of social dynamism likely would include. And these would include a renewed commitment to shared opportunity, an unapologetic celebration of American national community and spirit a somewhat role, stronger role for the state uh, targeted on areas where there would be the best return on investment, uh, policies to encourage more productive use of capital, improve investment in learning and experimenting, including research and development and new models of education, uh, a new war against bureaucratic excess, and a much more urgent program to combat mis- and disinformation in the society.
0: Yeah, those are all big-ticket items. I mean, those are broad categories. By intent, right. because like I say... You know, by the charter of this study, we were not trying to say this legislation is a good idea, that legislation is not a good idea or, you know, but in a number of those cases, um, you know, as I say, you know, in in shared opportunity, for example, there are a lot of hundreds of experiments going on around the country, uh, just as one example, to bring more venture capital funding to underserved, traditionally underserved communities to empower entrepreneurs in areas where they have not had access to or visibility to the venture capital community. There's some really good work going on there. There are some research uh, and and sort of nonprofit organizations devoted to that. There are some venture capitalists who are trying to contribute to it, right? So there are hundreds of examples like that of existing experiments with a track record that could be picked up and taken advantage of in the area of disinformation as well a lot of work going on in terms of you know how do you get people to distinguish fact from falsehood and put the and and equip them with the kind of tools they need to be intelligent information consumers um i think the to me the issue is not so much that we haven't discovered the right things to do it's that there's too much of a partisan fury that, dis, that, that it would appear to discredit some of these ideas or, be, or create skepticism about them. And, and there is not, you know, sort of the, the groundswell of demand that, and I think in all these areas, one of the consistent themes is that the required change is bigger than tinkering at the margins, but not, not transformative change in an extreme direction, but transforming institutions dealing with problems of bureaucracy uh, in ways that—and I see this very much in my field, kind of in the defense field, in the Defense Department, in the State Department, in other aspects, in the procurement of military uh, hardware—we need bigger change than we have been, I I think, uh, led to believe or um, uh, traditionally thought uh, would solve the problem and and crossing that hurdle without going to extremes, without saying the big change is to start scapegoating parts of society and blaming everything on them and you know erecting walls around the country and things like that, that national consensus to have the courage again um, to, to make change in a positive direction is I think the underlying theme. But again that gets back to our issue of, uh, the problem of this negative feedback loop, to have that kind of courage at this moment, surrounded by the kind of um, partisanship, uh, division, uh, corrupted information environment that we are, it's very difficult to, to get people to that point of confidence and willingness to say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to toss away some of these established ways of doing business in favor of a, a new approach um That takes confidence and, and an optimism about the future that it, it's not clear that you know we've got
1: right now. I think a lot of Americans despair of the kind of Renaissance you're talking about because they don't see it as being possible through our political system. Yeah. And you know you do touch briefly on some of the constraints in the American political system, including gerrymandering um, and low turnout primaries, which elect extremists, from both parties, um, but people who essentially have no interest in appealing to moderation or the center. uh, And yet you don't really discuss politics in the American context much. Why was that?
0: Well, you know, primarily because what we were doing and looking at the United States was really strictly narrowly limited to saying, here are seven characteristics, what do the data say about how the United States is doing, and excavating the real sources of those outcomes you know, some of our other analysis would would give hints, but it just it just wasn't our job. So I think, as you're saying, we did sort of highlight, uh, and this is an area for that you know is is of, of significant concern that there are some of the the partisan divisions um, and ideological divisions in the country have begin to become institutionalized in certain ways uh, through, for example, the construction of certain kinds of Congressional districts uh, that goes beyond just sort of an attitude that can change quickly. Um, but even there, you know, the solutions are potentially on the table. And a number of states, of course, as we know, have been experimenting with these ideas of independent commissions designed to, to build uh, or, or to design, um, lay out maps of congressional districts, some localities looking at ranked choice voting, voting, and a number of other ways of trying to get at this problem. But that's a perfect example, I think, of. You know, the, the, the route to the solution of some of those barriers to an effective active state and effective institution would require people saying, you know, we want a system that maximizes the potential for sensible, non-corrupt public policymaking. And so getting money out of politics and changing the habits of gerrymandering and, and in other ways, creating the best structural context you can to encourage the right kind of public policy. It's not that complicated. It's not that radical, but yet making that leap to the point where a a, a critical mass of the public says this is what we want and demand. um, You know, we, we all know some of the reasons why that's not happening, but that's, you know, that's the transition that has to happen. And that's, you know, if, if I'm concerned and if my optimism has real limits, it's that, I'm not quite sure I see the uh, impelling factors that are going to create that. Um, You know, as you know, I cite, we cite in there a historian, Walter Scheidel, uh, whose book, The Great Leveling, um, or or Leveler, talks about the fact that large societies in their phase of decline see increasing inequality and greater and greater wealth capture and rent-seeking by elites. And the only thing, he says, that interrupts that pattern is a large calamity. A major war, like a really major war, a world war, not even a modest war, uh, an enormous pandemic like, you know, um, uh, the Black Plague or something like that, uh, that in his view, he found it hard to find cases of societies that simply decided that they needed to pull themselves out of that sort of a a relative decline. I think we can still do it, but um, time is getting shorter, I guess.
1: Coincidentally, I just uh, struggled through Scheidel's Escape from Rome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, where he points out that actually one of the best things that happened to humanity, or certainly Europe, was the collapse of the centralized state. Right. Uh, because that gave rise to a number of competing societies that ultimately spurred each other on to uh, make the breakthroughs that led ultimately to the Great Divergence.
0: Right, which is an argument for why, you know, I mean, fragmentation has its cost, but it's a reason why Europe advanced. It's another reason why the United States has such a competitive advantage. I mean, our states are laboratories of policy and there's, I mean, you can have a race to the bottom where everybody's trying to cut taxes to attract business and end up, you know, with enormous debt. But you also have these wonderful experiments where a state will try something uh, with regard to homelessness, with regard to providing medical care, whatever. And it works, and other states look at that, and they want to compete, so they follow it as well. So within the American federal system, we have built in a little bit of that advantage that Europe gained uh, that Scheidel is talking about in that in that book.
1: Although there again, you know, Ron Brownstein's most recent column for CNN is talking about how uh, we're losing some of that uh, federalism, that in fact, uh, politics are mitigating in the direction where you actually have one side wanting to prescribe how all of these different states uh, should actually behave according to one unitary model.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's true, I guess, on both sides of the political spectrum. And it gets back to our issue of balance, of um, it's always this, this struggle between the perception of absolute values, whether it's justice or normative uh, things that people want to impose on the entire system, and the willingness to allow variety uh, in a way that uh, ultimately produces a stronger whole, so it's a never-ending dialogue. You know, it doesn't have to be resolved, but yeah, I think the risk is when you get to the point where the, the productive variety gets gets uh, kind of undermined in favor of, you know, maybe excessive central regulation.
1: Yeah, and one of your overall lessons is that orthodoxy is ultimately the enemy of dynamism. Yeah, um, there are many. Qualities That go into making up dynamism, but one of them is openness to new ideas, new peoples, uh, new ways of doing business. Uh, you know, one of the ways in which you can define moderation is, is not just seeking the, the middle ground, but also as eclecticism. And, you know, for example, when you were going through your list of of findings and recommendations, yes, they're nonpartisan, but, you know, it's the conservative side in this country that's more associated with support for vibrant commercial markets, uh, escaping from stifling bureaucracy, uh, emphasizing national community and identity it's the liberal side, it's more identified with the active state, um, with equality and shared opportunity. And clearly what's needed is not coming down on one side or the other of that, but uh, an eclectic mix that includes all of those factors. hundred
0: percent. And I love that term eclecticism. I mean, I think that really is another uh, nice word that, that captures some of the essential spirit of this Renaissance spirit or other aspects of, of the most dynamic model. So yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it there, there's there's a ready agenda for somebody that wants to bust these you know kind of paradigms and say the future of national dynamism is about an eclectic mix of things that you think of as conservative and as liberal. I mean, one of them, you know, I know you're familiar with this as well. Um, one of the more dynamic journals of the last several years, um, it you know some find its origins a little controversial, uh, but American affairs has been publishing a lot of work by so not exclusively but many self-identified conservatives who have come to to question certain aspects of a more pure neoliberal or market-based model and talk about the value to promote conservative principles of aspects of industrial policy or aspects of government role in providing shared opportunity or things like that and you have you know going back to the dlc days you have folks that were associated with uh, the Democratic Party and more of, quote, unquote, the left talking about the importance of national identity through shared national service and things like that. So there there is, uh, I think, an increasingly rich intellectual investigation of this kind of eclecticism. And that, as in the past, can provide the basis for a future agenda in public policy. It's just, are the trends in politics to uh, uh, negative and and uh, fracturing to allow that kind of eclectic agenda to, to come to the
1: fore. That is a pretty critical question. Uh, let me ask you a question about the reception of this report. What use do you think the Office of Net Assessment is going to make of it?
0: Uh, so I think, you know, um, I don't want to, you know, again, put words in their mouth. Uh, I think the purpose of it was to Uh, encourage people in the national security field, including in the Defense Department, to to be thinking in these societal terms. There are ways that the defense enterprise can contribute to some of these things. Shared opportunity is a great example. I mean, you know, the Army has been having problems with recruiting, as we've been reading the last uh, couple of weeks. And the Army secretary, uh, my former RAND colleague, uh, Christine Wormuth, um, and uh, General McConville, uh, the chief of staff of the Army, uh, recently uh, issued a letter indicating that to create a a more a, a, a larger pool of recruits in the future that they thought the army might need to reach beyond college age folks beyond even high school age folks and develop some experimental programs to begin trying to ensure that young people not only see the army as a potential career but are developing in in uh, terms of their study, in terms of their physical fitness, and other ways, in ways that provide. So it, it it would be a military service reaching out into society and doing even more to generate shared opportunity. But this is obviously a long-term issue. It's a it's a issue of national competitiveness that that looks ahead decades. Uh, so it's not going to you know affect uh, current defense policy in most ways. But I think. The idea was to just ground our current thinking in the competition in this larger context and ask, ask what it means for current policy.
1: You know, uh, this might have been just a personal reaction, but as I was reading through your study, it occurred to me that the military is maybe the institution in American society that best exemplifies a lot of those societal characteristics you're talking about um, as an organization um, and is very consciously working to support them. Um,
0: so I was going to say, in a lot of ways, yes. Um, You know, I I think that's true in terms of the, you know, the willpower and ambition that they try to inculcate institutionally in individuals and in terms of the opportunity that they share. So in a lot of ways, yes, there are problems. You know, I've thought that this framework is a tool that could be applied to organizations or institutions as well as societies, And we haven't done that, but if you did it, if you applied it to the Defense Department, you'd see some areas of concern as well. You know, their their equivalent of the active state has become incredibly bureaucratized to a degree that is significantly constraining the innovative capacity of the Defense Department and the National Security Enterprise, for example. And in some other areas, you could identify some some real challenges. But yes, uh, as institutions, they reflect a lot of these characteristics uh, to a significant degree.
1: I mean, you warned, like I said, about the danger of of orthodoxies uh, coming to constrain the discourse. And, you know, I followed H.R. McMaster back from the time uh, uh, in the uh, Iraq war when, you know, it was actually pretty important to see whether he would be given a star or whether he would be expelled for his heresy. Uh, And it turned out that he was given a star.
0: Yeah. And of course, eventually became, you know, National Security Advisor. I I do think that... um, you know, the military is an organization and certainly military leaders would recognize this. It's not anything new. Um, it, it reflects some of the tensions between these characteristics and the importance of balance. So the the emphasis on a what you would call a unified identity and uh, sort of a, a, a unified effort toward a goal can often then become a constraining orthodoxy and in a number of wars in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, the U.S. military-specific services and the military more broadly has had a real problem breaking out of the orthodoxy that this is uh, a war that we're winning. This is a war where the trends are looking good. We can win this war. Um, You know, a mission-driven organization always is at risk of developing conventional wisdom orthodoxies and kind of um, shared commitments that then quash kind of independent thinking uh, and, and uh, make it more difficult, uh, as we've seen in the Afghanistan papers and other kinds of things, to have contrary views to what is the, 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 the conventional wisdom. So, you know, I think like all major organizations, the military services, the defense department, what we would call the U.S. military on the whole, you know, it is, a, it is a wonderful example of, uh, for example, building shared opportunity over time in ways that have typically run a bit ahead of the larger society. And yet, it also, like all institutions, reflects the dangers of where some of these characteristics can become excessive and go wrong.
1: I agree. Uh, one more point on the military. You know, you actually, around the middle of the book, we're talking about the problems of uh, Ottoman armies. And in particular, uh, how Arab tactical commanders failed to demonstrate initiative, flexibility, creativity, independence of thought, uh, an understanding of combined arms integration, an appreciation for the benefits of maneuver in battle. And ultimately, this led to a lack of aggressiveness, responsiveness, uh, movement, intelligence gathering, adaptability. That sounds very much like the problems that the Russian army has encountered in Ukraine. And again, for the reason that it doesn't give sufficient initiative to its junior officer level. And that, I think, is one thing that the army has done spectacularly well uh, in recent decades.
0: Well, another example, and, and the sort of, um, you know, the analysis that you're referring to there is more about sort of modern Arab armies than, you know, than the Ottoman era. Um, but the work of Ken Pollock and others highlights a lot of the factors that you're talking about. And one of the reasons why. Um, the armies of uh, not all, but a number of, of the modern Arab states have had difficulty producing high levels of military effectiveness. And yeah, absolutely. is a, a great example of the practical effect of societal characteristics, because it's just very difficult for a centralized, um, but also sort of nepotistic, corrupt governing structure to produce a highly effective military. And you know, you saw that in some of these earlier cases, I think you're seeing it to a degree in the Russian army. One of the hallmarks of that is uh, this sort of famous uh, distinguishing factor of the the NCO ranks, the non-commissioned officer ranks, kind of senior enlisted ranks. Uh, The U.S. and some other militaries are uh, well known for cultivating very strong, uh, highly trained, respected, Uh, NCOs, including senior NCOs, people that the officers uh, respect as essentially substantive equals and rely on, and that become really kind of the beating heart of uh, the command structure of militaries. And you just don't see that in the Russian army, some of these early Arab armies, in part because maybe a little less true of the Russian army today, but the officer, the sort of the distinction between the officer and the enlisted ranks can be so stark. And, and the officers perceive themselves to be almost sort of, of a different class than the enlisted people in, in ways that really reduces military effectiveness. So, yeah, it's a great example of how um, societal characteristics eventually transmit themselves into the operational effectiveness of an army.
1: And, and, you know, that extends to many other areas of society as well. Just for example, uh, you cited the non-hierarchical aspects of institutions like uh, the Mechanic Society in Britain. -hmm. In uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, intellectual societies that drew in autodidacts, people from working-class backgrounds as well as the elite, and brought them together on a basis of equality, in pursuit of a shared objective of mastering the natural environment—if you want to put it that
0: way—right. And of course, it's it's easy to you know exaggerate the degree of social mobility and equality in Britain in almost any era, including today. Um, You know, the dominance of the Oxbridge elite is well documented, but but yeah, in very important ways. You know, that notion of we're looking for good ideas wherever they come from, and we don't care that much about your background, your rank, anything else. If you've got the solution to the problem, if you've got an idea for a new product, we want to see it. Um, And that spirit is, you know, a pretty good summary of the American Opportunity Society in a lot of ways. Um, It's a characteristic of the most successful companies. So, yeah, that open-mindedness to... um, uh, it, it's, it's a part of uh, uh, the, the shared opportunity society that really underpins national dynamism.
1: Yeah. You point out in your conclusion, and maybe this is where we end, uh, that not all engines of national dynamism are created equal. Um, and that in the modern world, as opposed to perhaps some eras in past human history, there's really a few key characteristics that are determinant. And these include openness and embrace of diversity and the benefits of pluralistic governance structures, uh, opportunity fueled in part by a strong commercial ethic, a learning and experimenting mindset grounded in powerful national identity and ambition, And supported by effective institutions and an active state. Or, in short, a tolerant, open, opportunity granting, effectively governed society. And I think that's what we all need to be working toward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like one of our characteristics, which we call learning and adapting society, is really the hub around which all the others revolve. I view it as kind of the centerpiece of this idea of a Renaissance um, society and that kind of intellectual energy. And, and openness to ideas from various places, the, the sort of confident and um, open-minded tolerance for contributions and really an excitement about drawing ideas from different parts of uh, a society uh, is just so uh, clearly related to national success. Um, and again, it's one of the reasons why people have loved the American model, why immigrants um, so often, even to today, speak uh, very often, not always, uh, in, in such reverent terms about American society, because it has managed to reflect a lot of those characteristics more than most, uh, certainly more than just about any other great power that we can identify. That still exists. That, that essential character of the American society is still very much there. And if we can build on it and get to Uh, an appreciation for the need for some of the change we talked about earlier. There's no reason why we can't have another, another phase of that sort of American dynamic competitiveness.
1: From your lips to God's ears. Uh, <laughs> Mike Mazar, thanks so much for joining me today. And thanks for your great work. You've given us a lot to think about.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
1: And thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niscannoncenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eschelman our sound engineer Ray Engineering and the Scannon Center in Washington DC